welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. Only two of our millennials are here today, though. Hi, it's Pai Chen Bui, and I'm here with my one other co-host. Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. Anya is currently not here with us this week because she's off gallivanting in Japan. Yeah, she took a, she's taken a trip to Japan that you took last year? Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time is moving on so quickly. Time flies. And yeah. I hope she's having a great time yeah. in Japan right now. Have fun, Anya. It's like the middle of the night, so she's probably sleeping. Yeah. But she'll wake up to a brand new podcast. Exactly. Because she does have internet, because she's been Instagramming. And there's been good Instagrams. Yes. I'm, and it's been very exciting to see what she's been doing. But what are we doing this week, Willoughby? Well, we're doing kind of a sequel. To an earlier podcast, we've talked about cult TV and revivals and Disney not ruining your childhood with live-action remakes, but this time we're doing unnecessary sequels and remakes. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I feel like this is us kind of going on a a pivot here. We're going rogue. We're going rogue. We have in the past defended... Um, you know, sequels and remakes and adaptations before, but there are some times when they're just not necessary. Just, just not necessary. Yeah. Like, like they, like studios don't need to spend the money on yeah. making this movie because it's not going to be good. exactly. Think of this as the antithesis to our legacy sequel episode. Yeah, this is about sequels or remakes that are clearly just made for the cash grab and mm-hmm. don't have any um, redeemable story or reason for making them or they they do wild changes to to the you know this is going to sound ridiculous original original adaptation so to uh source material yeah um you know this isn't us going to be bashing the star wars movies or creed or mad max that's for our legacy because we would we would say that those were the successful sequels and that they like they took on the original sort of themes and messages of the first movies and uh, improved upon them or made them or like brought them to a modern era and like you know made essentially they were they were um earned Mm -hmm. exactly now why are we talking about this this particular week hd well last week i saw tomb raider which is a semi-remake of the Angelina Jolie, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider movies, and an adaptation of the video game I, franchise. I guess it would just be another, it would be a reboot, wouldn't yeah. it? Because like, I guess a reboot. <laughs> is, it go, is it more of her origin story, if anything? It's an origin story. It's actually more of a close adaptation of the video game, the, the new 2011 video game reboot. There's mm-hmm. a lot of terms going on in here, but it's all of these things. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it just feels wildly... Meh. Yeah. Very mediocre. And I kept thinking while I was watching this, why was this made? Other than, you know, I'm happy for Alicia Vikander to have another vehicle for herself. I think she's a talented actress. I don't really know the choices that she's making post Ex Machina and Man from Uncle because mm-hmm. they're wild. They're not good choices. <laughs> she's kind of had similar, like, Eddie Redmayne, like, mm-hmm. post Oscar win. <laughs> like, not sure what they're doing. Remember when he was in. Um, that uh the danish girl no not danish girl the um oh jupiter ascending yeah jupiter ascending i was like pacific something no jupiter ascending (laughs) no pacific something is my thing yeah yeah, yeah. so no so she's been making some weird choices and she's great in this movie but she barely elevates a movie that is just kind of like it feels like a middling 90s action film like it's not changing the game in any way 
sorry. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> it's a video game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's literally a straight adaptation of the video game mm-hmm. from what I hear. Although it did make me want to play the video game because I'm like, these puzzles look really cool. Mm-hmm. So was there any tomb writing? There was one ra- tomb that was raided, but wow. she did it against her will, too. Oh, wow. So it's, like, not even consensual tomb raiding. Yeah. <laughs> but I kept thinking when I was watching this, like, why was this made? Because the first Angelina Jolie, uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider movies were, all, like, moderately successful. The first one was. The second one was both a critical and commercial flop. And there was no real sort of demand for, the, for more Lara Croft movies. Um, and I don't really know... I'm not really tapped into, like, the video game community. I don't think that they were exactly itching for another Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie either. That, that's the thing. Is there's always new Tomb Raider games coming out, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like there's always one a couple, a couple every couple of years. Yeah. So it's, like, it's it's interesting, like, what projects exactly are chosen. I do think it's exciting that we have another female-led action hero mm-hmm. movie. Just, I wish it was better. Mm-hmm. Or, you know... I don't know. It's just, it just seemed to me extremely pointless. But, um, and I probably won't get a sequel either. So, it's a waste of most people's time, except for, well, even Alicia Vikander, she got ripped for that movie. And there were some fun parts where I was like, okay, Alicia Vikander can headline an action film, but I just wish it was a better one than this. Mm -hmm. So, let's dive into what we think of as an unnecessary sequel or remake. So, I think that if there's real clamor for it or real like um for the longest time people have always wanted another independence day movie <laughs> and then it and then it came and the lord giveth and the lord taketh away yeah and it wasn't good and so like you kind of almost uh, be careful what you wish for yeah. in certain sequels because sometimes movies are really good as standalones or you know Classics like I know they've they've always talked about like redoing Casablanca or doing the, a Graduate sequel. Th- that would be terrible. Those would, I know the I think they made a book of the Graduate like what happens after the Graduate. Uh, That's not good. It's like whenever they try to do a continuation of Pride and Prejudice or like a Jane Austen novel, for mm-hmm. example, it just feels incredibly cheap, like a cheap ploy. Yeah, and so this weekend I also saw something that's along the lines of this, but I would say it's. On, on the spectrum better than the rest. Uh, I saw Pacific Rim Uprising, and it's definitely not a Guillermo del Toro movie. I'll, t- I'll give you that. It is definitely a John Boyega, like, proving he can be a leading man. Although he proved that with Attack of the Block in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is pa- pretty much, like, his vehicle. He produced it. Um, he basically took it out of development hell, which I'm very glad for because mm-hmm. we got more... Uh, Kaiju fights with uh, Jaegers, which I'm, you know, like the, I know uh, a lot of people love the the Pacific Rim, and I do too. Mm-hmm. But but this movie is more about like the action of it all. Mm-hmm. So like the action sequences are good, but the um, plot is very simple and very like kind of wild. It takes some twists and turns that I was not expecting and didn't agree with the entire time. Yeah. Um. But like John Boyega is charming as hell, and like basically like very similar things that you were describing for Tomb Raider. I can say for this one where there are a lot of bits of it that were met like scott eastwood <laughs> granted <laughs> granted what he's doing in that movie is what scott eastwood is good at which is being a is wet he blanket. good at something he's being <laughs> good at being a wet blanket i mean at being a white wet blanket it's funny because like he's so good at it that i forget he's an 
every movie that he's in, ever been in. I remember he's always he, that person. Yeah, I remember reading up again on like fat, the Fate of Furious, and I was like, I enjoyed that movie. But then I was like, wait, Scott Eastwood was in that movie. Scott Eastwood is, is in that movie. Scott Eastwood is in Suicide Suicide Squad, and he's in Pacific Rim Uprising, and he plays the same like military dude who is also square like jaw. square jaw, square dude, as in basically like a like no fun. Uh, has to be on military brand See, all the time, just, which is which is complementary to John Vegas, who is more of like a loose cannon, which is great. Yeah, but the there's movie a way of playing is, that character without just like becoming a complete black hole of charisma, though. And that's what he is. Yeah. And, um, so like that. So with John Boyega being the son of charisma and uh, Scott Eastwood being the black hole of charisma, there's kind of a balance there going on. Right. Um, it's if you kind of if you set your expectations low, you might enjoy the movie. Oh, okay. But let's get into a broad, our uh, discussion of unnecessary sequels yeah. and remakes because I, if you think about it, Pacific Rim didn't need a sequel. Yeah, it could have it, it closed the story. It closed the story. It could have done prequels. It could have done. I mean, there were comic books that have been done about mm-hmm. what happens before the movie. But like, I mean, spoiler alert for Pacific Rim: they closed the breach. So yeah. you know there there was need for a new sequel, but I'm I'm okay. I'm happy that I'm a little happy that they did it. Yeah, sometimes the the uh, the landing is hit or miss depending on like how well the team does behind it. But like for Pacific Rim, that for me was kind of the definition of unnecessary sequel because we had such a great story in the first Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I enjoyed the first Pacific Rim, but mostly. On the ben, like, on the basis of Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. and like what he brought to that film, like you could tell he just had this naked love for this story and these kind of characters and this kind of like mecha anime kaiju movie, and that is to me what made Pacific Rim so appealing because the movie itself was just was just fine. I'm kind of one of those. I'm sorry, one of those people who just thought Pacific Rim was just fine, mm-hmm. but it was elevated by Guillermo del Toro. Exactly. And so, like the the Pacific Rim uprising is just fine. Yeah. Um, so, but for me, like Pacific Rim, the first one, it felt like you know a fifteen year a ten year old boy at heart who was playing with his action figures, and in the best way, it was like a love story. It wasn't to that, like a to Michael that Bay genre. No, exactly. Whereas this one. It feels to me, I will say, I haven't seen Pacific Rim Uprising yet, but it feels to me uh, divorced of that sort of love for the genre, and it feels more like just a corporation uh, tapping into the popularity of this to sell more toys. But the thing is, interestingly, is that the first Pacific Rim was not uberly successful. Yeah. So, like, there wasn't a studio reason to make the movie. Yeah. I think it, I think it more was... Fan demand. Fan, fan demand, but... The people who were making the movie, besides John Boyega, who was really just who was a producer on it, he wasn't he didn't have creative input. I don't mm-hmm. think. Um, but Stephen Denight and uh, I can't remember. It wasn't written by the same people. It wasn't written by Guillermo del Toro and Travis Beecham. Yeah. Um, so like they say, it's based on characters. Um, so the creative t- team of the story is, is is different. So there is that level. There's there is a change in 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 the it's. And who's making them? Yeah. I think for me, what constitutes an unnecessary sequel or remake is something that is a combination of uh, lack of fan demand and also uh, the studios wanting to go in for a corporate cash grab. But at the same time, the first movie was not 
the first movies maybe weren't that successful co- mm-hmm. commercially either. So mm-hmm. it always kind of baffles me when a movie like Pacific Rim, which I like, enjoyed, I thought was like critically fine, um, it got a sequel <laughs> right. in the first place. I mean, I can understand wanting to go back into that world, but yeah, the, the f- original story too was just so uh, tightly like it, it had it contained end. exactly, yeah. and it was about these characters who I really enjoyed, and having them not really kind of come back but not really come back for the sequel would is where it lost me essentially yeah no i get that i completely get that Mm. so why don't we run down some uh sequels and remakes that we thought were unnecessary i know willoughby has a list i have a list yeah why don't you go down some some of them um (laughs) the hobbit sequels uh the movie could have been one long movie yeah or it could have been two at most three was really pushing it what do you, I mean, you've read The Hobbit, yeah, right? Yeah, I... It's not as long as Lord of the Rings. It's tiny. It's, it's tiny compared to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I actually... The Hobbit was one of the biggest disappointments for me because it was my favorite book. Right. I liked it more than Lord of the Rings book because oh, it was actually more of just like a rollicky children's adventure versus something that was world-building like The Lord of the Rings and that was sort of populated by archetypes like Lord of the Rings. I felt more connected to The Hobbit because it was just a small adventure and it was very contained. Um, and yet there were some moments at the end that became quite like brutal and harrowing, which was really a really interesting experience for me as a kid. Um, but then... It turned into the complete opposite they for tried the to, film adaptation. They tried to do another Lord of the Rings yeah, and like, trilogy. The thing is, like, they combined both The Hobbit and The Cimmerillion, mm-hmm. which is a complete opposite, like, right. on the spectrum of, like, what kind of books they are. So here you have, like, a fun, self-contained children's adventure b- com- combined with, like, this world-building, this grand, sweeping world-building, and it makes no sense. It's not thematically makes no sense, and it just, like, is very incohesive. So... Yeah, because you get... You get you you lose Martin Freeman as the Hobbit for good portions of the Battle of the Five Armies, mm-hmm. where you're just like, oh, right, Bilbo's the main character of this, yeah. but he's not in, in the trilogy. It's, yeah. you know, all the other things that are happening. Yeah, the Hobbit sequels, you could definitely see by it being split into three movies how it was a corporate cash grab and Mm -hmm. trying to tap into people's nostalgia and love for the Lord of the Rings movies. Because I remember it was initially pitched as two movies. Um, And even then, that would have been way too much. Yeah. And also, kind of connecting it to Pacific Rim, Guillermo del Toro was supposed to do them. Yeah. Right, he was. And then he dropped out. Um, So, Indiana Jones 4. Mm. um, And I guess Indiana Jones 5, too. Uh, which is happening. Yeah. Which is going to take place in the 60s. I don't want to have to see Indiana Jones confront his own r- racist tendencies. Uh, oh, that is true. There's some weird, like, that movie, he's going to be old in that movie. Super old. Yeah. Um, uh, Indiana Jones 4 was not good. It was, I'm sure people wanted more of it, but maybe in the 90s or 2000s when Harrison Ford was a little bit younger and maybe Spielberg was a little bit more to his blockbuster side. Spielberg is still a great director, but having Indiana Jones 4 take place like 20, 30 years after the original trilogy. Took place 20 years. 20 years. It feels separated from what made the original Indiana Jones trilogy so great. Because they replaced... And that was like this swashbuckling, mm-hmm. sort of young, very um, adventurous and very like... Um, ooh, I don't know how to how, like, how to just describe it, but it has this very um, sort of, yeah, swashbuckling mm-hmm. feel to it. Like James Bond almost. Yeah, yeah. And um, having 
old Harrison Ford in it. It could have grappled really interestingly with how a hero uh, of that sort of caliber is dealing with age, but it doesn't. No. You know what does do that well? Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Which... Another Harrison Ford legacy yeah. sequel, very yeah, exactly, yeah. and Star Wars actually, and, but like yeah. you can't do it with every character. Indiana Jones, yeah, like you said, he's like James Bond; he's sort of frozen in that time that he is, and and it works so well because of that. And they replaced Nazis with communism, mm-hmm. which the Russians were our bad guys. Like basically Spielberg and George Lucas, who was still making the movies at the time, they were like, well, we can't do Nazis again because it's 1955, so we're yeah. gonna do communism instead. And I was like, okay, I get that. Um, but also, you could have just not done the movie. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, God forbid, everyone's like, well, what if they recast, you know, Indiana Jones? I'm like, sure, cool. Yeah, a do, lot of do these... another Do another 30s movie, uh, you know, when he's, you know, art. Because, like, there's a certain point where, like, when once we enter the atomic age, Indiana Jones is almost a relic. Yes. Like. Exactly. I think that's exactly what I was trying to go for. It feels like when you try to drag these franchises on too long by remaking them or adding sequels, it feels like a relic. It feels like a semblance of that time. Yeah. And not something that works in our current sort of world stage, essentially. Like, you, in, in that movie, you can see how these characters, like how these older characters are dealing with the younger characters, like Shia LaBeouf, mm-hmm. as a greaser who is also Indiana Jones' kid that he didn't know about. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you see, like, generational differences, but generations that we don't we don't connect to. Yeah. We don't connect to the 30s and the 50s anymore. Exactly. And There's There are some movies that tap so well into that current political and cultural climate. Indiana Jones, I think, was one of them. And it's sometimes can be brought into a modern age, but sometimes it just feels like it fits perfectly as sort of a, a, a snapshot of what we felt and what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. I actually want to bring up another one that's like, yeah. uh, is a bit more controversial than um, Indiana Jones, not quite as beloved, Death Wish. So oh, Death yeah. Wish, the original Charles Bronson one, was actually a really fascinating snapshot of like 70s, um, masculinity at mm-hmm. the time. So there was a lot of frustration and uh, sort of, I don't want to say emasculation, but like uh, the 70s you were dealing with political turmoil and everything and this sort of wave of second wave feminism that were threatening a lot of um, men and their ideas of masculinity and um, you also had an upright uptick in violence and violent crime. Mm-hmm. And New York was terrible. Exactly. You see a lot of that of the movies that tap into that, like Taxi Driver, uh, this sort of repressed um, male rage in a way. And I think Death Wish was a really good example of that as well. New Hollywood and, in general yeah. did a really good job yeah, exactly. of like, breaking those down. And it's it's a snapshot because it's not, you know, it's not healthy behavior or anything like that, but it's a snapshot of what men in America were going through at the time. And bring that into a modern age with a Bruce Willis remake that doesn't deal with like the cultural foundations in which the original movie was based, it feel it feels just like gratuitous. What it is, forced. it's almost. I don't. It's. I don't like it at all, and it seems really tone deaf. It's very tone deaf because at the time, because now we're dealing with such a, like an uprising of of white dudes yeah. shooting up people. It. It comes into a time 
It comes in with like old values in a time when those values no longer make sense, and in a political climate that it just like does not work anymore at all. In like like we know, just had the march.、Violence. We just had the march for our lives、exactly. yesterday, and this movie is still playing in theaters. It、yeah. was never there was never anything about pulling it,、mm-hmm. even though we have mass shootings and like the like marketing. Every day, the marketing was strangely playing into the sort of right wing conservatism, like gun. Gun toting as well, which was very strange to me, and、yeah. did not it it didn't it left a bad taste. So that I think is something that、uh, is another factor of what makes constitutes an unnecessary remake. It's a relic of its time, and brought into the modern age, it feels even more dated or more、um, just out of place and out of time.、Mm-hmm. So let's go down some other ones.、Um, so. Tim Burton did a, a remake of Planet of the Apes that、mm. was just bullshit. <laughs>、um, he tried to make it different than the original 1968. This is before the Andy Serkis movies,、mm-hmm. which are artfully done in a way that this movie can't ever compare to. It's Mark Wahlberg trying to be the Charles, Charlton Heston character. In this case, I'm just going to spoil it. They're not on Earth. It isn't Earth in the future. It's an co- actual, completely different alien planet.、Oh. It takes away the whole thing, of like the whole surprise of it being Earth. So, how would you、um, differ it from differentiate it between like the more successful current Planet of the Apes trilogy and the you know the Tim Burton remake? Like, why? Where did it go wrong? I think it went wrong with it being.、Um, It was, there's no political commentary.、Mm. It's just、um, Mark Wahlberg dropping in on a planet of just ruled by apes、mm-hmm. um, that was founded by one of the space space chimps that they send out into into these black holes in our modern day Earth and or in the version of the Earth where they like sent off a chimp into the black hole and he and I guess he somehow helped you know found a society on another planet. So it's like our Our space chimp helped create a new. Okay, it's weird. I don't get <laughs> so it. So essentially, it takes a surface level understanding of the original tr- series and tries to invert that or subvert it in a way without completely understanding the political context in which the original series was made. And there's whereas no... the new trilogy、yeah. understands that and subverts it, but it actually does does a deeper sort of.、Um, Sort of reboot of it in、yeah. a way. I it, it ended up being more of an action film of like Mark Wahlberg being Marky Mark、mm-hmm. and Tim Roth as like a evil chimp.、Mm-hmm. Uh, like Tim Roth just does not do well in blockbusters. No, he doesn't.、Um, yeah, it's just it. You know, it kind of there's no none of the Twilight Zone is of it because、um, Rod Serling did a, a draft of the. Uh, original Planet of the Apes screenplay, really? It's like, and he, that his twist was that it was Earth. And, That's very Twilight Zone and, twist, actually. And like, they, they, it went through several rewrites after him, but they kept the twist that it was Earth.、Mm. And so that's what makes the movie compelling is that it's not a different planet; it's Earth.、Mm-hmm. And so when you take that away, you don't have that anymore. You don't have the ramifications、yeah. of nuclear fallout. Or、uh, political carnage and like humanity's, humanity's own worst sins. Exactly, you don't have that. You just have pretty boy Mark Wahlberg flying into another planet and dealing with like another society instead of dealing with his own society. Yeah. So that's why I really like the new Apes movies is that they they take that understanding of 
political ramifications of doing tricks to, you know, going too far with trying to cure illnesses and, mm-hmm. like, our whole – the whole thing with, uh, like, the whole idea – instead of nuclear fallout, it was – it's uh, uh, epidemics mm-hmm. is are the big thing. All right. Uh, so I want to go – Go through like quickly the rest of the list. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um. So Psycho with Psycho Vince Vaughn. Psycho with Vince Vaughn. You you love the original Psycho. I do, and this I remember was a shot for shot remake of the original Psycho, but with Vince Vaughn instead. Yeah, and I've heard nothing but terrible things. About I've it. actually I've never seen it. I've heard it has its defenders though, which yeah. is very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, because I think it's one of those. It's it's like well, if you're doing a shot for shot remake, why do it at all? Exactly. Why? What's the What's the difference? Do you just want to do modern techniques, modern filmmaking? But it's not modern techniques or filmmaking. Exactly. It's a shot for shot. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, there's what's the point? Is it just, like, putting on a different play? It's, That's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, p- people do new adaptations of plays all the time, but they try to do something different. It feels like a strange experiment that either went horribly awry or worked i'm not really sure it's it's actually quite divisive on whether it worked or not um but that's an interesting sort of inclusion as well did you ever see the time machine with guy pierce i did i actually remember liking it a lot i remember liking it a lot too and then i rewatched it and it's not good it doesn't hold up it doesn't hold up um jeremy irons is this weird uh psychic morlock who tries to like uh use the time machine so interesting thing is the time machine is sort of an anomaly in this because time Mach- this remake is the one that we first saw. Mm-hmm. We never saw the original one. No, but I've read the book, mm. and so the book is different. I mean, the book is very similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of him going far into the future, and there's a, two casts of civilizations after the Earth is crumbled. But like, it falls apart, and there's there's not a lot of story to it. Uh-huh. Um, and they put in a whole new thing about him wanting to go back in time to save his wife or girlfriend. And that's his whole idea of making the time machine, whereas the original book and movie, I believe, is him just creating a time machine for the sake of having a time machine. You know, like man's ingenuity and science mm-hmm. exploration. Um, whereas um, with this one, it's kind of about him trying to see if he could stop his wife from dying um, by like by a robbery um, or by armed robbery, and it does not hold up in mm. that terms, and it just becomes weird because then he he falls in love with a future woman, and so he's like, I'm just gonna go back in time to the future. I think I remember liking it, but mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds it's dated. It's interesting. Ironically, well, <laughs> the thing is, this is an interesting one because it's one that we would deem unnecessary just by virtue of its mediocrity, but we don't remember the first one at all. Mm-hmm. So. Is it unnecessary? Because we never hmm. knew if it was if, if it was a, it was a remake or not. Well, I've heard plenty of good things about the original movie, mm. so I don't know. I put it on the list because I just wanted to talk about it because it's kind of like one of those like properties that keeps getting adapted and. Yeah, I mean, like I actually wouldn't say like this one. Is, this is an interesting one because I would say that it needed a remake for a modern audience mm-hmm. because the uh, the first one was from 1960, and it was quite. Not that well-known either. It was sort of a B-movie, I think. And bringing it to modern times was, was actually kind of a good idea, even if the execution, act- execution was unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that this, was, this would be included in an unnecessary one. I would just mm-hmm. say that this is, is a, it was a bad sequel, a bad mm-hmm. remake, yeah. but it wasn't unnecessary. 
That's a that's a good distinction. Mm-hmm. That's a really good distinction. Yeah. Um, because let's talk about like for for example, Independence Day resurgence or Jurassic World, for example. Um, both you know de- both were kind of demanded by fans. They weren't good movies. I would argue about Jurassic World because I hated it. But you know they were were they unnecessary? Or not like right. What be it just because they were successful or not successful? I mean, to quickly go into Independence Day, I would say just be- because they. They kind of do what Pacific Rim does, where they kind of they stop the invasion. Yeah. There's no there's no threat. Yeah. At the end of the movie, um, that you know everyone everyone's like gung ho and happy. Yeah. And then Jurassic Park, I would say the only good movie of that whole franchise was the first one. But they keep well, they shut to, they shut the park down. Yeah. But they keep trying to remake it for the cash grab. So I would say that by definition, by our like, you know, our universal def- definition that everyone should abide by, all of the Jurassic Park sequels are unnecessary. The, what I, I mean, what I do like about the second and third ones is that they turned, they didn't try to reopen the park each mm-hmm. time. Actually, the second one they did. They tried to do a San Diego version yeah. of it. But the third one was just like like a, a lost and found it yeah. version. Although I will say, because of the box office success of the first one, I guess you could call it necessary. There's because studio demand for the it. The studio demand for it. There's, there's money no, demand. And I guess there's fans of Jurassic World. I don't yeah. know who these people so, are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why don't we talk about... you? So, so you recently saw the original RoboCop. Mm. Yeah. And you liked it. I thought it was fine. I'm sorry, Mike. <laughs> but it, but there was you could understand the political satire of yeah. what it was trying Ooh, to do? That's interesting because, yeah, the original RoboCop was very much a sort of snapshot of that time and the political satire of the time the new one does not do any of that yeah the new one i saw is basically a shoot 'em up th- uh, thriller mm-hmm. of joel kinnaman trying to retain <laughs> Joel Re- Re- isn't it? yeah he plays the robocop <laughs> he, he's the titular robocop he tries to be um he, he tries to retain his humanity like mm-hmm. he instead of um peter weller regaining his humanity like at the end of the movie it is uh Basically, he's always got his humanity on until the corporation turns it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some implications of like free will and all that kind of jazz. Once you're, you know, not yourself anymore, and what does that mean? But they really don't play into um, the political satire of like mega corporations owning like Detroit. I think RoboCop and Blade Runner and its sequels are have really insting- interesting distinctions because in the case of RoboCop, it was you know sort of demanded by the studio because the first one was successful and it was a cult hit. I mean, there were like three or four RoboCops. There were? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that at yeah, all. Yeah, they've made three. There were RoboCops right, movies well, afterwards. But this is a reboot. It's a successful franchise. I could see why they wanted to reboot based on the money. But the difference between RoboCop and Blade Runner, for example, is that, you know, they it was studio-driven versus Blade Runner 2049. They had it as director-driven. Mm-hmm. And they picked a great director like Denis Villeneuve who has such a great artistic vision for it and really brings that story forward both for the modern um, generation but also taps into like the themes of the original movie. I remember watching Blade Runner 2049 and retroactively liking the first Blade Runner, Blade Runner more, mm-hmm. which I was not a fan of when I first saw it because right. it actually answered some of the questions that I think Blade Runner was kind of trying to ask but not really. Yeah. So it's I think that's where the distinction lies between like an, a movie like RoboCop versus Blade Runner 2049, both cult sci-fi films that have political commentary or satire of, or some sort. Yeah. All right. I want to do one last thing. Uh, yes. Yes. 
The Mummy. The Mummy. So this is another example, I think, of studio mandated sequels or reboots. It's the most、uh, mandated studio thing, like blatantly studio thing、mm-hmm. I've ever I've ever seen. Yeah. Of them trying to do their own universe.、Uh, Because they put the cart before the horse, essentially,、oh, and、yeah. we're like. This is going to be our launching pad for the Dark Universe.、Uh, let's forget that Dracula, Dracula、uh, Untold was ever a thing. Supposed to be the,、yeah. the start of yeah, it. Yeah. So the Mummy, which is gonna, which starred Tom Cruise,、um, is supposedly going to be a great big hit because Tom Cruise is the biggest movie star of our time,、um, and and he can do no wrong. He can do no wrong. He honestly, he's a great movie star. It was just a bad movie and an unnecessary one at that. And one, well. Okay, so the, here's the thing: these movies, these monster movies, have been done over and over, over、again. and over again. So, like, the, the, this this is an interesting development of like the fact that these movies have been done. The Mummy movies with Brendan Fraser were reboots、yeah. of the '30s movies with、exactly. uh, Boris Karloff.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's interesting implications that the Mummy is a reboot of a reboot, but the the Brendan Fraser movies are beloved classics. Yes, they they've, they've become beloved classics. Yeah, I feel like. although actually, this is an interesting one too because、mm-hmm. I will say the monster movies have they're so classic that they're ripe for being rebooted over and over again.、It's、the reason that we've seen it's the reason that we've seen so many like Shakespeare adaptations, for example. I think that they have so much potential to be twisted and done interestingly.、Um, I remember Guillermo del Toro was. Speaking of, yeah,、uh, sort of in talks to do some of these dark universe type movies, and I would have really loved to see his vision of it. I think he was going to do Frankenstein. He was. I would have loved to see his vision of it. Him spearheading a dark universe, that would have been really interesting. And I think, I think what comes into play is artistic vision. These movies didn't have the, the Mummy. From what I've what I've heard and what I've seen. Does not have artistic vision.、Mm-hmm. Doesn't have a. I mean, there's some connect- connectivity to like a larger universe that seems really shoehorned in,、um, but it doesn't seem. And, you know, like the most blatant thing I remember is the that photo of all the ma- the main characters of all、yeah. the different movies they were going to do. That was hilarious. And then they and, and they introduced like the dark universe like logo that was like the it was like a black hole with、yeah. the with like the Universal Studios like font, but it's a dark universe. Man, that was just such an ill-advised venture like, in all in all regards. When Marvel did it, they were doing it slowly and、yeah. gradually. They didn't say like, "This is now the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you and you will watch these movies till you die." Yeah. This was oh, we're doing an Iron Man movie. That's fun. Incredible Hulk, Iron Man two. Hey, let's let's do a little bit more. Let's do some Thor, Captain America. Why don't we bring these guys together? This is we're gonna put them all together, and you're gonna watch the movies. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's even more blatant than the DC universe. Exactly, and it's like it's because no one was asking for a movie that teamed up Frank,、uh, Doctor Frankenstein, or、uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and、um, the mummy, the mummy, and the Invisible Man, and, and the, the, the werewolf, wolf, the Wolfman, Dracula. Yeah, it's like I mean, I、It'd、love all these、fun. characters. It, It would be, be fun. fun. But it's not in this sort of capacity. Like I would watch a pulpy B movie of that or、did、something you, like well, that. Speaking of, did you ever see Van Helsing? Or not Van Helsing?、Uh, a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I haven't seen that, but I've heard very good things. Well, it's it's a B movie.、Yeah. It's very campy. It's not the best movie on rewatch. Like in terms of like looking at it from like、mm-hmm. eight eighteen years later, but 
it's a it's like a fun movie. Like yeah. you've kind of you've got the same thing going on where you have all these characters that from different proper different nineteenth century properties coming together and like having like a team up. Which yeah. I mean, it's based on that comic book, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, and this is kind of what they were trying to do, but they just didn't do it successfully. Yeah, I think here I would add as our last sort of um, I don't want to say rule, but like. Parameter. Yeah, parameter. parameter. We, we have we love there's is, a yeah, lot of great exactly sequels. a lot of secret sequels that were unnecessary, but maybe they were good sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, I as the last parameter, I will add the, the movies don't or the studios don't respect the audience. Mm-hmm. Like they see them as cash cows, or they see them as just like being not smart enough, or just like willing to buy and do anything mm-hmm. just for the sake of like seeing a franchise or something like that. So I think that that is the last sort of factor and sort of like our. our Interesting discussion about unnecessary sequels and, or remakes. And it's kind of why, um, like, Sony tried to keep doing Fantastic Four and Spider-Man movies because not only that, but they had to they had to keep making movies to retain the rights. Yeah. So I mean, these guys are the the Mummy movies. The Dark Universe characters are all in public domain. Yeah. So they can just do whatever they want with them. Mm-hmm. But with, like, characters like Mr. Fantastic and Spider-Man, they have to keep making those movies if they want to con- re- retain the rights. So it's a holy sto- studio yeah. thing. And I will play devil's advocate for Anya uh, yes. and say that, you know, those originals will always be around and you can always revisit them. And sometimes it is good to bring these stories to a modern audience because you'll be introduced to them for the first time like we were with The Time Machine, for example. Exactly. A movie I enjoyed. But um, I think when there's the case of it not staying true to sort of the themes or the context of the originals or they disrespect the audience or um, other factors like that, it's a surface-level interpretation of what made the original so powerful or so compelling, then I think that's where we can call them an unnecessary sequel or remake. Exactly, because let's think about it. All movies are, at at some level, um, they are money-based. Or, you know, there's like... Um, they're um, money-based, there, and they're also... I mean, Hollywood is an is industry. It is a business. And at the same time, not, there's no original stories either. Yeah. So like Hollywood's always been redoing movies the entire all this time, but like doesn't mean they have to be. Nec- uh, doesn't mean that's a good thing. Yeah. Um. You know, like I think I think what comes down to me is is there is there artistic need for a new story or a new development yeah. or a new reboot of like I like the Star Trek movies, yep. the reboots. Those were great because mm-hmm. they told a different story. My essential thing it comes down to me for um comes down to me too. Uh, did I waste my time? And did the studios waste their time? Yes. And did these actors and directors, did they waste their time making a movie that they knew was going to be bad? Mm-hmm. So Exactly. And I think that's a good way to wrap up our discussion about unnecessary sequels or reboots. If you guys have any um, ones that you have in mind, then yeah, let us know. This but, is just a list of Yeah, like this is just a list of ours. We own. didn't even get to Godzilla 2000. <laughs> I want, I'd want, I want Mike Sillingle on the pod yeah. for that one <laughs> as a deleted bonus content. Yeah, that would be fun. Our uh, senior nerd Nerd co- Our senior monster correspondent. Nerd correspondent, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right, Willoughby, what do you really like this week? Um, I really like, well, I, don't, I wouldn't call it pop culture, but I went to the March for Our Lives oh. uh, yesterday. Um, there were, I mean, there were a lot of... Uh, performers there um miley cyrus 
uh, Ariana Grande and Demi Lovato were like the and uh, Jennifer Hudson were like the biggest uh, stars there at the DC March, which is like the the main one. Ever, ever, all the other ones were like our quote unquote sibling marches. Um, but it was an incredibly powerful um, and impactful um, march. I didn't go to the women's march uh, a year and a half ago, and I was disappointed I did I didn't do it because um, I'm not a big person of crowds. So yeah. and so like this like this was kind of like I want to protest now. I want to march now. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of buckled down and just said, screw it, I'm going to do it. Um, and it was it was really well done. The march itself wasn't really a march. It was more of a rally. And it was from 3rd Street in D.C. to 12th Street on Pennsylvania Avenue, like between those uh, side streets um, on Pennsylvania Avenue. The entire cr- – it was so full. Uh, like NBC News is reporting like 800,000 people were there. Um and there were jumbotrons. You could hear everything really well. Like it was really well done in terms of like a nice rally. But it, and then the speeches were incredibly power empowering. Like almost every speech I cried afterwards Aww. because there were like there were survivors from uh, not just Parkland but other uh, uh, school shootings and uh, gun violence mm-hmm. victims and survivors. They told their stories and. A lot of the Parkland students that we've seen on TV were ta- talking about their stories and talking about, you know, this isn't right, this isn't normal, we shouldn't have to be, uh, you know, doing this. Like, this is, you know, we should be choosing life and not choosing death. And there were a lot of powerful statements, and I encourage everyone to go online and look at and watch all the speeches that, you know, all these incredible kids were doing. Yeah, they um, are going to save us all. Yeah, oh, man. Um, and it was just so inspiring there was at one point they were showing it was like the finale uh jennifer hudson was singing uh the times they are changing and uh the cameras were on the audience and you could just see everyone was holding up all their signs Mm -hmm. and you couldn't see a face because everyone had so many signs that's amazing it was really incredible um and so i encourage everyone to look up all the footage and youtube videos of the speeches and the performances because i think this is definitely a it's different yeah than what we've seen before with the backlash to to a recent mass shooting yeah that's it's they're actually being galvanized and that's really amazing Mm -hmm. i didn't go to the march myself i was really sad i missed it but i um i went to the women's march last year (laughs) it was like forever it was like 15 months ago (laughs) yeah so and like that was also an amazing experience but i i saw some of the speeches and they for this march it was just um, inspiring Mm -hmm. Um, but my really like is a little bit more on the lighthearted side, I guess. Yeah. I saw Game Night. I'm so jealous. I, Have you not seen I it yet? I've not seen it's it yet. So good, Willby. It's going to be a comedy classic oh my God. on par with, like, oh, I don't know, Anchorman. <laughs> it's so good. Okay, so shout out to Anya for putting this game, this show, this movie on our radar. Yeah. She, I remember like, we, she, were, we were very skeptical well, about I, it. I, I mean, I, it was like, oh, that looks fun. Because mm-hmm. she, she messaged us the trailer because Rachel McAdams is in it. Yeah. And she loves Rachel McAdams. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I, I'll probably see that yeah. eventually. It looks remember, like a good movie pass. I, movie. I remember watching the trailer and thinking, oh, this is going to be some like mediocre comedy with a couple of big stars along the lines of like date night or something mm-hmm. where like things slowly escalate and it's kind of silly, but you kind of you forget at the end. Game night is not that. Ooh. It is a great, sleek, action-packed film. It's actually... It feels more like an action film that like has comedy in it, mm-hmm. but it's like it is nonstop jokes at the same time. The jokes fly, the co- action flies. Um, oh, what's his name? T- 
Todd. Oh, Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons is amazing in it. Yeah? Every scene, every time he shows up on screen, you just burst out laughing. He is so funny. Oh, goodness. He, and uh, Rachel McAdams also, comedic genius, underrated. Hmm. I mean, she was funny in Mean Girls. She was funny in Mean Girls, and people forget that. She has a great comedic um, talent, and I'm really happy I got to see that again this time. Everyone was so great. It's also really great that you have, um, at the center of this movie, a really healthy, positive relationship between two people in love, like uh, Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams' character. Mm-hmm. They're the, the core of the film, and they are both like the comedic core, but also the emotional core. They don't like, have like a loveless marriage, yeah, and they're no. on the verge of divorce. Exactly, or like that comedy doesn't have to punch down. Like it, it can be fun, and it can have these people who love each other genuinely, and like just want to get out of this mess. Mm-hmm. And it's really good. I completely recommend it, and um, I give it two thumbs up. Yay! That's cool. I still need to check it out before it gets out of theaters. It's going to get out of theaters soon, will it be? I know! And I know Anya is probably, like, lambasting me for not seeing it <laughs> all yet, and, but I hope, uh, I hope I get to see it soon. Yeah. Thanks for the rec, Anya. Yeah! Um, so, if you guys want to let us know about your worst, the worst remakes or sequels that are unnecessary, um, or you want to talk about the March for Our Lives or Game Night, please let us know. And where can they let us know, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play or listen to us on SoundCloud. And where can they find you, HD? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. And you can find Anya at Anya, Anya Crinton on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> where she will be updating about her trip to Japan. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.